0: An Orthodox rabbi fought Nazi sympathizers in his own government to secure the preservation of the Jewish community in Bulgaria during World War II. After the war, he led them to Israel. He also had a vision of the risen Yeshua and was an outspoken believer without ever abandoning Judaism. His name is Daniel Zion, and our guest today, Brian Reed, just wrote an extensive biography on this great Jewish hero. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by First Fruits of Zion, providing Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews. Put your hand in mine together, we will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. Welcome to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish, and that changes everything. My name is Jacob Franzek. I am not here with my co-host, Damian Eisner. He's in surgery. He's not having surgery done to him. He's okay. He's fine. He's completely healthy. Um, he's doing the surgery on other people. That's his, uh, that's his second job. But um, today we're blessed. We're going to be talking about a new biography from First Fruit Design about Rabbi Daniel Zion, and this biography was written by our guest today, A Collector who may in fact be in possession of the largest collection of Rabbi Zion's original writings and those of many other 19th and 20th century Jewish believers in Yeshua. Brian Reed, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, um, Brian, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I mean, what drew you to Daniel Zion? What inspired you to do all this research on this sort of obscure 20th century figure?
1: Well, it all began probably uh, around 2003, 2004. Uh, I had just stumbled upon Messianic Judaism and I was looking online to see if there was any literature I could read to get more further acquainted with it. And I stumbled upon the Messianic archives of a fellow named Jorge Quinones. Uh, It was Mm. a small collection that he had posted online from scanned documents that he had collected over the years himself. And initially, my interest in all of These figures began with Paul Philip Levertov, and shortly after uh, I continued to peruse his archives, I came across the name Daniel Zion. I actually came across a biography written about him, a small biography online written by Joseph Shulam, Uh, and and that figure really caught my attention. Here was a man who was a chief rabbi and who actually was more recent in time than a lot of the figures that were on the archives that Jorge had posted. Uh, Daniel Zion being a figure who actively engaged with his government, the government of his country, uh, and also actively fought against the deportation of his uh, own people within Bulgaria. Uh, I was approached by Vine of David to do a biography on this individual. I was quite surprised by the amount of material out there on him, uh, That a lot of it not in English, most of it in Hebrew and Bulgarian, uh, but those documents were translated to English. And I learned quite a bit about a fellow who is mysterious and controversial, uh, but very significant and deserves to be
0: known. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've read this biography that you, I read, I mean, I read everything that first, first, design puts out because it's all in, incredibly good. But, um, this, this guy, Daniel Zion, um, definitely caught my eye because he's, he's really unique among other, um, other Jewish believers in Jesus, right? I mean, there's, there's been Jewish people who have sort of converted to belief in Jesus and, um, you know, there's just all through history. You, 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 go, you, you go all the way back as far as you can go. But Daniel Zion is sort of unique in his time. What, um, if you wouldn't mind just telling us, what sets Daniel Zion apart from maybe other Jewish people in his time who also believed that, like, Jesus is the Messiah? Probably the key thing that
1: sets him apart is his lifestyle. He continued to live a Torah-observant lifestyle in a time when that was not so common among Jewish believers in Jesus. Uh, many kind of adopted the ways of Christianity in in the view that the Torah has become obsolete. Uh, they may have held on to some traditions or may have ob- observed some of the Torah uh, more out of... Uh, national identity, but Zion did it from religious conviction.
0: Yeah. And that was not super common in his time. Um, I remember reading about a guy, and this is actually like a century before, and this, the guy's name was Israel Pick. And I did some translation work that never get, ended up getting published because the guy, um, he's, he's only sort of like a forerunner of Messianic Judaism because he's, he 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 was Jewish. And he did believe that Jesus was the was the Messiah and is the Messiah, but he also just sort of bought into this whole idea that, well, you know to to follow Jesus means to abandon uh, Judaism. Daniel Zion really went against the grain um and as I was reading the biography, he wrote i I sort of noticed that, um, he, Daniel Zion was going against uh, the grain for a long time. Just to set the stage for our listeners here, Daniel Zion was born in um, in Salonika, which if you don't recognize that, that's Thessalonica. This is the the city in Greece to which Paul wrote his, uh, two letters, the first and second Thessalonians. Um, Daniel Zion was probably not a direct descendant of that exact Jewish community. I believe, if I have my history right, that he was descended from a Sephardic community that settled there after the deportation, the forced expulsion of the Jewish people from Spain in 1492. Um, Either way though, he he grew up in Salonika, he was trained to be a rabbi. And then the community in Salonika got a letter from Yuch the Jewish community in um, Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria saying, send us a rabbi, we need a rabbi. And they're like, okay, we'll send Daniel Zion. And my understanding is that when he got there, the situation, like religiously speaking, from a Jewish perspective, the situation was sort of dire, wasn't it? Like he faced challenges there from day one, trying to, I don't know what the word might be, like pastor this community as a rabbi. What was going on there in Sophia that made it so difficult for Daniel Zion?
1: The situation in Bulgaria is that the Jewish population there was very secular. Um, there's a, a well-known book by a, an academic called, his name is Guy Haskell. He wrote a book called From Sophia to Jaffa. And it, it kind of details a history of that community in Bulgaria and their eventual aliyah to Israel. Uh, and he interviews a number of the people who, who made that journey. And one of the individuals he interviewed said that there were four types of Jews Orthodox, religious, secular, and Bulgarian. And oh, wow. that seems to be a very accurate statement. Um, the Bulgarian population there, they they did observe the holidays, but it was more along the lines of celebrating maybe the 4th of July here as an American. Um, it has no religious connection to the individual, but it's something that you celebrate because culturally that's just what you do.
0: Yeah, you know, and I've talked to other I've talked to Messianic Jewish people today, I'm not going to name any names, but I've definitely had interviews with uh, with Messianic Jews in America who see Messianic Ju- Judaism in in sort of the same way, like, oh, you know, we celebrate uh, Passover as a national holiday, not as a religious obligation, but uh, it's like, well, I you know it sort of is a religious obligation, right? It's there in the Torah. Um, I rem- It seems like I remember reading this biography. He, um he had some conflict with other, um, religious leaders in Sophia other, because the system of like authority in Jewish communities at the time, the rabbi wasn't necessarily in charge of everything. There's, you know, like sort of a board of directors and there's other leadership positions in the community. He, um, he felt a need to campaign against uh, and for certain ideas. Like, um, he was a Zionist, and not everyone in Sofia was a Zionist, and he was against the dowry, and not everyone in Sofia was against the dowry. Um, do you have any, any more information on some of the conflicts that he had within his own community? Yeah, he came in and almost tried—it seemed like he tried to bring—
1: Torah observance to the community in Bulgaria without pushing it on them. He came in and set up a Shomre Shabbat society. He established a synagogue there for religious Jews. I don't know how large the attendance was at that when he was there, um, but he came in and really tried to instill in the Jewish community of Bulgaria a sense of pride in Torah observance. Uh, he established a society. Uh, a charity for starving Bulgarians, uh, for widows and orphans, for Bulgarian Jews, for widows and orphans. Um, His work was received positively, but they saw him kind of as an enigma uh, regarding the dowry. He basically came in and campaigned against this custom. Um, the The dowry for a bride created a serious financial strain on the bride's family uh, and basically because of that it considered the birth of a female child as something less fortunate and not such an event to be filled with the joy that it should be uh, it created strains in uh, familial ties uh, the the grooms would intimidate their future wives with this requirement for financial security uh, and he actively fought against that. He there was he didn't feel that there was a need to create this unnecessary strain and to create this tension between families that should be united through met through the bond of a, a bride and a groom. Uh, and so that was something that was a thing that was really heavy on his heart to fight against. Um, as far as the Zionist activity, you're correct that, that was something that was not so positive, at least in Bulgaria during that time. Um, he Was actively promoting the idea that the Jewish people should make aliyah to Israel because that was their homeland, that was the land of their ancestors, Uh, and he was met with a lot of resistance with that as well. Uh, The majority of the leaders of the Jewish institutions in Bulgaria were actually anti-Zionist. He, the synagogue board in Sofia. Ordered him to be scolded for his promotion of a Zionist ideology. Uh, there was other there were other factors that he kind of butted heads with the the board, uh, but the uh, the dowry and the and the Zi- and promotion of Zionism seemed to be the top two. So now this was like this was in the nineteen thirties. Is that right? This was it actually began a little earlier than that. He when he first it began. Early 1900s, uh, around 1915, 1917, somewhere in there, oh, okay. uh, but continued through the 30s.
0: So, so this was like he was a Zionist before it was cool, is what I'm getting at. Like he was a Zionist before, like he was a Zionist during the time when the British Mandate of Palestine was not letting Jewish people go to Palestine. So this was not a, a politically convenient position. He was advocating based on his belief in that the Old Testament was true and that God's promises were true, um, he was advocating a, a, a sort of migration that was not uh, possible under the laws of his time. I think that's kind of interesting. It definitely is. He was definitely ahead of his time uh, with a lot of his views. Uh, there were other views that were in line with his time. Um, well, I was thinking about this, um, a little bit early before we got on the call here because, um, I remember reading, cause I went through the whole, all of his, um, stuff I helped, I won't, I would say I helped translate, um, his, um, stuff out of Bulgarian and Ladino. Um, but I, I sort of, <laughs> I sort of did because it's just such a difficult project and you sort of need like a native speaker of the original language and native speaker of the target language. And, um my impression of an Orthodox rabbi, right? So I'm thinking Orthodox rabbi, Daniel Zion. My impression of an Orthodox rabbi is a guy who's just in a room by himself, surrounded by the Talmud and Midrash and like Shukhanaruch, like books of Jewish law and responsa and I don't know, maybe Kabbalah and whatever. Um, but as I'm reading Daniel Zion, he's bringing in lots of other stuff. He's He seems more eclectic to me. Um, can you give us some insight as to Daniel Zion's interaction with like secular philosophers and Christian thinkers he was he he, he was a little more broad minded right he was,
1: which was a little uncommon for his time. Uh, he definitely was a proponent of compare, of studying uh, other religions and actively engaging with their thought processes. Um, and that went beyond just religions, but to also to secular philosophers, a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers of his time, uh, as well as the ancients, uh, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, uh, and some that were more recent in time, such as Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, Blaise Pascal, uh, even engaging with the thought and uh, ideas of people like uh, Darwin and Leo Tolstoy. Uh, he was, it, he was, but he was not out of line though with uh, Jewish thinking in that matter. Maimonides um, himself said that in his introduction to his Commentary on Pirikei Avot, that basically accept the truth from wherever it comes, uh, whether it be from ancient or modern philosophers or from current works of your time. Uh, there's a famous story uh, about uh, Shmuel uh, related by Shmuel Hanagid, and it goes something like Rabbi Matsliak, who was the son of Al-Bazek, he was a rabbinic judge uh, and came from Baghdad. He was studying in the yeshiva one time, and he came across a verse in the Psalms, Psalm 141.5, "Let my head not refuse such choice oil," and there was a debate as to the meaning of this text, and the rabbi ordered him to go to the Catholic patriarch and ask him what he knew about this verse, uh, this greatly upset Rabbi Matzliak. Uh, but he, Matzliak, Rabbi Matzliak was rebuked by the rabbi and was told that our ancestors were guided by information and on languages and interpretations from many religious communities, even people as simple as shepherds. So it, it was an acceptable idea in Judaism, although it's not always actively promoted um, for reasons which they could lead the person astray, they could be taken in by some of these ideas and end up abandoning Judaism. But Zion's learning was of the level that he felt that he could actively engage with these thinkers uh, and draw out the good from them and engage and with the with the not so good and come out with a strengthened belief and being able to strengthen the belief of others.
0: Yeah, and I think that's impressive. I was it reminds me of a guy I've been reading um, been doing research for different projects. And I've been reading this guy, Elijah Benamozeg, in, in uh, Italy, and he's also a Sephardic Jew. And I feel like the Sephardim, the, the, the the Sephardic Jews, um, because of their cultural context, often have an easier time engaging with other um, streams of philosophy. Um, and Benamozig was saying, um, well i won't i won't give it away but uh he he was he's very charitable to other um other streams of thought other streams of uh even other streams of faith and I think, you know, it's an interesting contrast to sort of the Poli- uh, the Polish Lithuanian uh, Jewish community which was much more reticent much more uh, maybe uh, focused internally and i think we need to be aware of that we need to be aware of the stream of Judaism that is totally happy to engage with um, whatever else is going on in the world and has, has its own, you know, um, new ideas and reactions and, and responses to uh, everything that's going on.
2: Torah Club is the world's fastest growing Messianic Jewish Bible study. You can start or join a club today at TorahClub.org. Know Jesus better through an in-depth small group Bible study and fellowship with other like-minded disciples. Start a club or join a club at TorahClub.org. Torah Club is where disciples learn.
0: Daniel Zion, a strictly orthodox stereotypical Jewish rabbis. The guy, you know, he's got a big beard. He's got he's got the hat. You know, he looks just like you would think a rabbi would look. And yet, this guy became a follower of Yeshua. Now, if you ask any any missionary in the world, they would say, "Well, who's who's the least likely person to become a follower of Jesus?" You know, an Orthodox Jewish person. There's so many factors there. You know, they they've grown up with a whole. A structure of thought that's designed to lead them away from that conclusion for various reasons. You know, some of those reasons are are not bad reasons. But Daniel Zion, how did a how did an Orthodox observant Jewish rabbi become a follower of Yeshua? Well, that's a good question. There are a, there are a couple of different versions
1: of the story. I wouldn't see them as necessarily contradictory, but maybe one shedding light on the other. Uh, the earliest account dates from shortly after his arrival in Sophia. Um, he had met some Christians, and he noticed that they were very sincere in their faith and living lives of integrity, but also was impressed by their level of learning in the scriptures. And he would often hear them quoting from the New Testament, and that really—the the, the, thought—the and ideas within the new testament really impressed him and he saw them as ver- they sounded like verses from from the torah from the old testament and it created in him a desire to read the new testament and to see really what it's all about uh, that's the earliest account of his
0: encounter with with the with the new testament and with the message of jesus i think that's fascinating to me because here's a guy who's only, he only knows I mean, yeah, he's and he's engaged with like secular philosophers and such, but his, he's he has totally avoided the New Testament like on purpose his whole life, and then when he finally does sort of by chance encounter it, he's like, "Whoa, wait a second this this looks this looks good. Like this looks like Old Testament stuff. This looks like something a, a good uh, Jew would say."
1: Yeah, he. The more he delved into the New Testament, he noticed that it often quoted the Old Testament very frequently. And he was very impressed by the figure of Jesus uh, and was often confused why such a man would be condemned to death.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was, um, he read like Jesus' teachings, like what, like what was wrong with this? Like who, he's just giving us some Torah. Like he's just explicating the Torah. Why, why did this, um, like, why would anyone think that this is wrong? Um, But then like. I don't know whether his curiosity got the better of him. I remember reading in the biography he he like he went to a concert and he and he started hearing voices. Can you tell us what happened with uh what happened around this time of his life?
1: Yeah, so he he engaged with the New Testament, but in a and, and was impressed by its message, but in a way kind of put it aside um as you know, saw it as part of maybe the other bodies of literature that he was studying to beef up his knowledge, so to speak. Mm. Um, but the but the figure of Jesus did not leave him. Um, he was at an event and he began hearing these mysterious voices drawing him in, um, and he didn't quite know what, know what to make of it. Who was uttering who was uttering these voices to him? Um, he saw the voice as being something that was kind of lofty and beneficial, but didn't quite know what to make of it.
0: Yeah. Like I guess in Jewish thought, when you start hearing voices, it's either a real problem or you have you're at a sort of a level of hearing from God, right? Correct. So he, he and he and he knows this, right? Because he's a rabbi, he's he's fully trained. So he's doubtful as when he starts hearing these voices, he's like, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not going to make any concrete decisions yet, so he starts asking questions. Right? He does. Um, it, it, it continued to bother him. He would actually even continue to hear the voice
1: during morning walks and wasn't still wasn't sure what to make of it. So he began inquiring. You know who who would know what what I, what's going on? What am I hearing? Who is this that's speaking to me? Um, it, at that time in Bulgaria, there was a, a well-known mystic. Uh, sort sort of a, a Christian mystic, if you will, but um, not quite Christian uh, by all by all means. Uh, but he was highly respected. A man named Peter Dunoff, mm. and Zion was consulted uh, to go to Peter and see if he could shed some light on the voice that he was hearing. Uh, Dunoff ex- explained to Zion that this. Is, could only be the voice of Jesus, who is the Messiah, and ordered Daniel Zion to listen to the words that were being spoken to him and obey them.
0: So and I, I, I also seem to remember it that um, after a while of hearing these voices, at one point the voice told him to go out um, to a certain place at a certain time and um, that the weather would change, like um, to go out while it was raining and that the rain would stop. And he did, like he went out to the right place in the right time, and for a brief moment, the rain stopped, and this was like—he—he he seems to um, paint this in his own uh, telling of the story that this was sort of a thing, like this was finally not just hearing a voice, which you know, not just seeing a vision or whatever, which could be um, subjective, but this is something that really happened, some objective change in the world, a, a real miracle that confirmed to him. That um the voice that he was hearing was from God. This is this is real. Was, so I was impressed by that. I really liked that story in the biography
1: yeah what what he's what he related in his uh memoirs is that he saw a vision of the crucified Jesus spanning the entire expanse of the sky and wow. he was overcome with great joy uh, but at the same time had this trepidation but this this sign seeing this crucified image strengthened his face his faith in Jesus uh, and kind of was the the determining factor that yes, this is the voice that has been speaking to me. What I've been reading in the New Testament this is this is more true than a lot of the other philosophies and religions that I've been engaging with. This is what our people have been waiting for.
0: Yeah, you know. So it seems to me, for just from reading your biography, that he did not um, make this faith public, and then pretty soon after some world events. Um, caught up with them, so Bulgaria was in a, a fairly precarious pos, uh, position at the time politically, like international geopolitics. World War II started, and Bulgaria was economically tied to um, to Germany, right? And and they had they had really they'd picked the wrong side in World War One. They had experienced some incredible losses in the Balkan Wars, and they were a little bit desperate, and they hitched, you know, themselves. They hitched themselves to Germany. Um, they hitched themselves to Nazi Germany, their their biggest trading partner. And um, part of that deal was that Germany expected Bulgaria to to put all of the Bulgarian Jews in camps, with the goal that they would be shipped to Poland to the death camps. And Daniel Zion got wind of this. I, this, this was legislation that passed the Bulgarian parliament. I mean, there it, it seems like the government was on board with it. It was totally against sort of traditional Bulgarian values. Um, and it was certainly alarming to Daniel Zion when he heard about it. How did Daniel Zion respond to hearing about this this development in the Bulgarian legislature. Well, yeah, definitely the
1: legislature alarmed the Jewish community. Even Bulgarian citizens, the regular guy on the street, they had not had any issues with the Jewish people. They did not have that history of persecuting the Jewish people like some of the other Western European nations did. Um, but the alliance with Germany kind of set the stage for that. Um, it was more people within the political spectrum that were engaged in getting this deport, this planned deportation Uh, going forward. Uh, The guy who was the ultimate leader behind that was a guy by the name of Alexander Beloff. He was a lawyer with the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and he had studied the Nuremberg laws and in turn drafted his own law for the defense of the nation, basically labeling the Jewish people as the problem and that we need to deal with this problem. And the way to do that was to deport them out to the camps that the Nazis had set up. Uh, the Jewish yeah. people had got word of this proposed legislation before it actually passed, uh, and that created quite a bit of fear in the community. Um, there were uh, a number of people, including Daniel Zion, who began to actively campaign against this legislation. Uh, Zion began to speak with as many government officials as he could find. Uh He began with one of King Boris's closest advisors asking for an audience with the king. Uh, However, this request and a number of others were met with deaf ears. Um, Here was this obscure rabbi who was already considered an enigma in the Jewish community coming and demanding an audience with high officials to actively fight against this legislation. Uh, But they, they really didn't want to hear what he had to say. Um, one day when he was leaving the office of one of these officials, uh, kind of an a inspiration from on high fell upon him, and he heard this voice from within speak to him, a message warning about the dangers that would ensue for the country of Bulgaria should this anti-Jewish persecution occur. Uh, and he began to very actively speak about this message he had received. He actually made copies of it and distributed it throughout the community. But the, the council of the synagogue, the Jewish consistory, were very af- they were very afraid of Zion's vocal campaign. They feared that this would create a backlash for the Jewish community. And they ordered him to stop. But Zion, being who he is, he refused to do so. He felt that this was his mission to fight against this legislation.
0: You know, that's one of the things that struck me most about Rabbi Daniel Zion. Um, whatever was happening around him, like I don't it, it took a lot to change his mind about Jesus, right like it took several it took like voices, it took a vision and the weather changing and he finally assented. But generally speaking though, he, once he set his mind to something, um, he was just absolutely stubborn as a bull. And I love that about Daniel Zion. And he just kept going after these government officials. Um, and as, as far as I understand it, um, from the biography that you wrote, he, did, he ended up in like a concentration camp. Is that right? He did. Um, that was a part
1: of his, uh, kind of the result of his campaigning. Uh, him and another rabbi, Rabbi Hananel, who, became the chief rabbi after Daniel Zion. They were both put under house arrest. The situation in Bulgaria got to a point where it looked like the deportation was going to happen. Uh, a number of Jews within the territory surrounding old Bulgaria were actually sent off to the camps. Uh, and so then it looked like the Jews within Bulgaria proper were next. The campaigning against this legislation continued and Zion being still being very vocal. Uh, it led to him being arrested and sent to a a, kind of a labor camp for a while.
0: Yeah. And so he, he, he took that opportunity. I remember reading about this in the, um, in the biography, he, he did like sort of a counterintuitive thing. Like he would, he was sort of with everyone else, like stealing onions from the kitchen and, 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 you know, these sort of passive aggressive, uh, uh, acts of resistance, but he also befriended one of the guards, which I I thought was amazing. Like, I, I don't know if I would have the guts to do what he did, um, he, he he went to to one of the guards and he was like, we're going to be buddies. We're going we're gonna to be friends. Yeah, he was
1: everywhere he went. He was influential. And in, in the camp, he continued his role as the rabbi of the community, even though he had lost his position because of his active uh, engagement with the legislation and all and due to other uh, reasons. He still saw himself as the leader and he needed to protect his people. And, and, and that meant... Trying to get on the good side of the guards so that that would ease the situation of the Jewish people within the camp.
0: I just find that to be incredible. I mean, just in a, in a state of of utter hopelessness, he was still making friends. He was, uh, he just an amazing amazing chutzpah, I guess is what, is what I would call it. He he never stopped. Just building bridges, making relationships. He had a good relationship with Metropolitan Stefan. I mean, that was a big part of his effort, right? He w- he actually worked together, and this is before he was, and out like uh, open about his faith in Yeshua. He worked with Metropolitan Stefan, the leader of the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, to try to secure the safety of the Jewish people in Bulgaria. Right? That's right. The probably the biggest
1: ally in Daniel Zion's cause was Metropolitan Stefan. Being the head patriarch of the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, he would convene sessions with the other patriarchs to promote the cause of the Jewish people. He felt that these were God's people and they should be protected and that anybody who tries to persecute them will be coming under the wrath of God. Uh, Even before he became patriarch, Metropolitan Stefan had a reputation for being the advocate of the Jewish people. Um, when Daniel Zion had received his message from above of the warning from God that anybody who persecutes the Jewish people would meet with the wrath of God, he gave a copy of this message to Stefan, and Stefan actively encouraged him to distribute this message. He saw it as very urgent. Um, Stephan himself promised to visit the king and tell him everything that was in this message and that it was true and would come to fulfillment. Um, Stefan also visited other government officials and warned them that that they should actively promote the the cessation of this legislature, at, lest they come under the wrath of God themselves. And that he advocated several times before many individuals, because this was something he felt was this was on his heart, and he felt that this was the right thing to do. He told Zion that the doors are always open for him and that he can Zion can come visit him wherever he whenever he needed and that he was always welcome. And this this struck up a good relationship, a good friendship between the two men. And this man remained
0: steadfast in this cause till the till his death. I mean good on Metropolitan Stefan, right? And there's so there's so many examples of Jewish Christian interaction from from ancient times to the modern period, and and just so so much negativity. Um, I'm glad that that uh, I, you know, as an evangelical Christian, I'm glad that some there was a Christian there in Bulgaria that understood what was happening and understood what was at stake, um, and that allied himself with Daniel Zion to to fight for the preservation of the Jewish people. Um, now, what happened immediately after that was uh, the communists. <laughs> The communists took over and um, they got rid of these Nazi sympathizers and they tried them for their crimes, almost like a mini Nuremberg. They tried them and they convicted them for uh, their genocidal acts. And for a short time, Daniel Zion was the chief rabbi of Bulgaria. But then he left. He left and he went to Israel and he took thousands of Bulgarian Jews with him. It seems like to me that he was sort of at the top of his uh, career. And when he got to Israel, it wasn't great for him. Why did he leave his position at the, as the chief rabbi of Bulgaria to travel to Israel? And, and uh, I think it was in like 1948, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, just as the state of Israel was becoming a nation
1: again. He saw this as the opportunity that he had been hoping for and actively promoting ever since he arrived in Bulgaria. This was the time for the Jewish people to return to the land. And he actively declared to the population that was in Bulgaria, we are all going together. We are going to settle in the land of Israel. And the overwhelming majority of them went with
0: him and settled. Now, what... once he got to israel he was finally open about his faith that jesus of nazareth yeshua uh, was the messiah of israel and he went on the radio and he started talking about this what was the reaction from other orthodox jews in israel because he didn't stop practicing judaism he didn't stop being a rabbi he just sort of added on to this oh by the way also (laughs) I think that Jesus was the Messiah and we have some stuff we need to do. What what uh, what was the reaction from his peers in Israel, the chief rabbinate? It was not positive. Uh, roughly
1: about two years after he arrived in Israel, the chief rabbis of Tel Aviv announced that they would investigate this matter of Daniel Zion. They had heard that he had been teaching these heretical doctrines, actively promoting Christianity, and that he was a missionary. and. They were going to get to the bottom of this. So they decided to conduct a mass investigation of interviewing people that, Zion, that knew Zion, uh, that came over with him from Bulgaria. Uh, they, they hired an individual who had known Zion for years to, to conduct these interviews. And, even met, and this individual even met with Daniel Zion in person. He encouraged Daniel Zion to go before the chief rabbinate and plead his case, Um, but this was something he declined to do. But the investigation continued. Before he decided to go and meet with them at his hearing, he entered a month-long period of seclusion uh, and emerged from that publicly declaring his beliefs. Uh, And then, so they had no choice but to figure out what to do with this man two days later after he declared his beliefs publicly before them they declared that he was mentally challenged uh, and that he was guilty of inciting and enticing jews to convert to christianity and that he was guilty of promoting anti-jewish christian teachings
0: now that's a real shame because if you read through everything he wrote he was not necessarily um on the same page as as Christians or as Christian missionaries, I mean, he was—he had a very Jewish idea of what it meant to uh, to be a Jewish person and to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, he he uh, Christian missionaries who came to Daniel Zion and said, "Hey, you know, join our team, join our club, uh, believe what we do." He was like, "No, no, you're wrong. you are wrong. Here is all the reasons that uh, your faith is is deficient. You know, the the Torah is still." Active. Why are you saying it's that the, the, the Torah is done away with And he had, you know, he had just a, such a traditionalist view of uh, of the Bible and of and of Judaism. So it's it's sort of sad to me because these accusations were uh, were not true, right? That's correct. Uh, They basically came to four conclusions as to
1: why they felt that he was mentally challenged. Uh, They had found a record somewhere in Zion's family from the previous generation of an individual who himself experienced mental illness. Uh, They also felt that Daniel Zion's association with Peter Dunov in Bulgaria uh, influenced him and that he shared their beliefs uh, to, and by, and by his association with Peter Dunoff, the Jewish community in Bulgaria had removed him from his post in the synagogue. And so they saw that as a precedent that he was already having issues mentally. Um, and then they saw that when he moved to Israel, they said he fell under the influence of a, of a woman who had left Judaism herself and was known as an active missionary. Uh, and therefore all of these basically combined, they said that, no matter what kind of lifestyle you live as a Torah observant Jew, you're promoting this heresy, and we have no choice but to encourage people to distance themselves from you and to declare you mentally unfit.
0: And that's an interesting dichotomy in Judaism, right? Because for a long time it was just halacha. As long as you did the halacha, you're that you're fine. Like you know, keep keep the commandments of the Torah, and you're golden. And then. You know, as maybe in response to the the po- sort of poisonous Jewish-Christian dialogue of the time, um, it came to be um, an article of faith that you just can't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It, um, I think the you know, time period— is a real step backward, right?
1: Yeah, the time period may have had something to do with it. We're coming off the heels of the Holocaust when a lot of Nazis were actively building themselves as Good Christian individuals, and how could a and how could a Christian promote the persecution of the Jewish people, of God's own Jewish people? I mean, Jesus Himself was Jewish. So, in essence, you're persecuting Jesus Himself. Uh, And I think that may have just coming off the heels of that terrible time in history. I think that that may have had something to do with it. Not that Jews who believe in Jesus are or very well accepted today and uh, among the the Jewish population. But I think with that added bit of history having just occurred, that still made them t- very cautious about accepting this man and his message.
0: Yeah, I and mean, just such just another unfortunate chapter in Jewish Christian dialogue. Um, and I think you know, and I think and pray and hope that um, that as time moves forward, we can do better.
2: Become an FFOZ friend today and join First Fruits of Zion in restoring the original faith and message of the Jewish Jesus. Sign up now at ffoz.org friends. Centuries of misunderstanding about the Torah, the Jewish people, and the Jewishness of the New Testament obscured the real good news message of the kingdom. Today, a prophetic resurgence of faith is breaking out, and FFOZ friends are at the forefront of this restoration. Become a friend today at ffoz.org slash friends.
0: One of the most intriguing parts of the biography of Daniel Zion for me was he tried, and not by himself, he tried with Avram Polyak and there was uh, several others. He tried to set up a community in Israel, in Jerusalem, of Messianic Jews. He tried to set up like a brand new expression of faith that was just based in the New Testament. It was like, here's what we lost. Let's get it back. And it seems to have sort of petered out. I mean, people just resigned from this thing one after another. What happened with that? Why why was that sort of initial momentum? I mean, these geniuses, Daniel, Zion, Avram, Um, Why did this not get off the ground? Why was that momentum lost? I think there were a couple of things, both internal and external. Uh,
1: Externally, uh, Poliak himself relates that this union that they had formed uh, was seeking recognition by the Israeli government. Uh, They drafted a constitution and bylaws and submitted them to the government, but the government was not able to recognize them Uh, And because of being a religious body. They suggested they work in conjunction with the Ministry of Religious Affairs to regulate this union. But the union couldn't do this because it was comprised of a number of Jewish believers from various denominations, Catholic, Protestant, uh, what would be a Messianic Jewish. Uh, and because they weren't settled as under one denomination, they never got the recognition they needed by the Israeli government. Mm. Internally, I think the because there were so many people coming from different perspectives that this created kind of a, not a division, but a, a hindrance to unity, and I think that just caused the dissolution of the union itself. Um, and seeing its slowness in taking off, sometimes you just kind of lose that momentum when you see that things are slow to get going. You th- ever want you wonder, will this ever go anywhere? And then you start losing people one by one.
0: Yeah, that's a shame. I remember uh, reading that Daniel Zion thought toward the end of his life, he thought um, if there were, if he had ten people just like him, he would have been able to change the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, he definitely shared the vision of Polyak and uh,
1: Emmanuel Ben-Mayer, uh, another individual involved in this union. I think they were just ahead of their time, uh, much like some of the other luminaries in the Messianic Jewish world in the, in the past years. Uh, they have these great ideas, but the time is not right for them. And the next generation seems to take their idea to the next level, but it never quite gets where they're wanting to go, and so it's a step-by-step process. And I think with the Messianic Jewish movement today, you're seeing kind of the culmination and the end result of the work of all these individuals,
0: and it's reaching that goal that they were all aiming for. I really hope so. I mean, we have the Brahm Center. Frister's Design has the Brahm Center right now, right there in Jerusalem, um, a place where people can come here, Messianic Jewish teaching. Um, the the my my prayer and my hope is that this mission will keep moving forward and and um, will honor the legacy of these incredible um, these incredible people who came before us who who I guess you know what does Hebrews say um, we we have here we have no lasting city right I mean so many generations have looked toward the promise of what's to come and um, we all hope that our generation is going to be the one to make it happen.
1: I really hope so. And I think with the publication by First Fruits of Zion and Vine of David of these works from these great luminaries, it's reawakening their voices as if they were still around with us, around the table discussing these ideas and the direction to go in preparation for the return of the Messiah and the building of his kingdom.
0: Yeah. And you know, there's an interesting sort of parallel idea in the in the chazal in, in in the in the Jewish sages where they say, um, you know who whose opinion is better—the earlier sages or the later sages? Well, someone who comes later has both opinions. They have the opinion of themselves and they have the opinion of the earlier ones. I I hope that all of this effort over so many generations can just snowball as we as we collect all of this information and all of this momentum can snowball into some kind of critical mass. Yes, indeed. So. At the end of every uh, podcast where we interview someone, we have uh, something I like to call the rapid fire round, and uh, these are questions we don't give to the guest in advance. We ask them to answer off the top of their head. All we can promise is that the stakes are low, but this is what the people want to know. So here you are. You're we're fellow Michiganders. You are close to Lake Michigan, and what I want to know is what's the deepest the snowbanks have ever been in your area? What's the deepest the lake effect snow has ever uh, submerged you? The deepest by
1: the lakeshore, not very deep, actually. Um, about 10 minutes east of me, I've had it up to my waist. Um, I will say that the frozen ice on the lakeshore that is built up by, by the lake, that I've seen that reach up to about 10 to 12 feet tall.
0: Ooh, 10 to 12 feet Oh, that's hard. So uh, I don't know I'm if a, you count frozen ice as uh, lake no, effect snow. But. No, we'll count it. We'll count it. Ice is just as good as snow, maybe worse. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm out here. I'm out here to, more toward the wrist, the middle of the wrist of the uh, Michigan hand here, uh, and we, we've. I don't think I've ever had it that bad. Um, all right, second question, rapid fire round. If you could have lunch with one messianic Jewish pioneer, except for Daniel Zion, who would you pick? Paul Levertoff. Oh, Paul Levertoff, Anglican priest. Incredibly interesting guy. Good, good choice. Uh, All right. I have to ask this. I have to ask this as a fellow Michigander. Um, Michigan is playing Michigan State. Who are you rooting for? You know, I don't know because I don't watch them
1: play actually. Oh,
0: it's- (laughs) I'm originally from
1: Alabama. uh, I went to college at Auburn University. That's, that's, If I root for a team, that's got to be it. I would say if I had to choose, it would be Michigan.
0: Well, that's not a bad answer. That's not a bad answer. Mark Mark Kinzer went to a university in Michigan. So uh, we'll we'll accept that. We'll accept that answer. All right. Last question. Uh, There's 15 million apple trees in Michigan. What is your favorite variety of apple to dip in honey on Rosh Hashanah? Granny Smith. Granny Smith. Yes. All right. Granny Smith. There we go. You heard it here first. Granny Smith dipped in honey. I won't say it's a bad choice. The sourness, the bitterness of the Granny Smith combined with the sweetness of the honey will provide a balanced taste for your Rosh Hashanah experience. All right, Brian Reed, thanks for joining us here on Messiah Podcast. It was a joy to speak with you and to learn more about this great Messianic Jewish pioneer, Daniel Zion. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. For me as well. Well, thanks for tuning in to Messiah Podcast. You can pick up this incredible biography of Rabbi Daniel Zion, along with his selected works from the First Fruits of Zion store, FFOZ.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends, like, comment, subscribe, leave five stars on your favorite podcast aggregator, and come back next time for more Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews. Until then, Shalom. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Jacob Franzak, along with Damian Eisner. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. The show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you are interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club, which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to Torah Club. Until next time, Shalom. Let His Word cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea Let His love cover you and me Like the waters cover the sea